Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for a brand new week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks to all of you for being here. Um, We have a great panel lined up today. As usual, I've sent out notes with way too many topics. We'll never get to everything that I ask them to be prepared to talk about. In keeping, I think, with last night's Academy Awards, I sometimes look at my topic notes and think, wow, they're everything everywhere all at once. But (laughs) we we won't get to everything today. But before I introduce the panel, I want to take a moment. I'm I'm going to take a, a moment of personal privilege. Over the weekend, I was part of a remarkable day on Saturday, organized by the Augusta attorney, David Bell. It's an annual event that David puts together in which he puts the spotlight um, on uh, various leaders of Georgia government over the years. This year, uh, we focused on the years of 1959 to 1983 and talked in some depth about the um, three governors, Ernest Vandiver, Carl Sanders, and George Busby. And it was a remarkable time in Georgia history uh, because, among other things, uh, it signaled the beginning of the integration, uh, not always in a voluntary way, of Georgia's schools, the elimination of the county unit system, the emergence of Georgia and particularly Atlanta as a center for international trade. And uh, David brings together a remarkable group of people. Federal Judge Steve Jones was the MC for the program, uh, Georgia Supreme Court Justice John Ellington was in the audience, and at lunch, Justice Ellington actually uh, led an interview with David Dove, who is the executive counsel to Brian Kemp, and he was so good that I said to him afterwards, I said, you know, Mr. Justice, uh, you did that so well that anytime you're free uh, and you want to come out and be a substitute host on Political Rewind, I, <laughs> I think you'd uh, be terrific. Chuck Bullock gave a presentation, Karen Owen was there from our show, as was Jim Galloway. But the real reason I'm mentioning all this um, is to say that um, so many of the people there came up to me and said that they make Political Rewind a part of their lives as many days as they can. And I'm just so gratified to hear that. And um, so it was a wonderful day for me to learn about Georgia history that occurred before I got here. Uh, And my thanks to everybody who I got to meet with. I didn't mention uh, federal judge J.P. Bouley was there as well. So it was a pretty august group of people. Uh, and uh, I thank David Bell for letting me be a part of it. All right, that's enough of me. Let's get right to our panel. Patricia Murphy is my partner from the AJC on Mondays. Hi, Patricia. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing great, Bill. How are you? I'm, I'm like I said, I'm feeling very full. I learned a lot <laughs> over uh, the weekend. Good. Andrea Gillespie. Andrea Gillespie is back with us. She, of course, is a political science professor and the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory. Hi, Andra. Hi, how are you? Good, good. Bernard Fraga, your colleague from Emory's political science department, is also 
back with us. Bernard, we're always glad when we get a chance uh, to be with you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. And we're also joined today by Jeff Graham. Um, Jeff Graham, for 15 years, has been the executive director of Georgia Equality. Um, he is also absolutely one of the top lobbyists at the state capitol. And his job isn't an easy one, especially in a time when there, is, there are efforts to uh, inflame the culture wars with attacks on the LBGTQ community, transgender uh, uh, people in Georgia. and But Jeff Graham has always been someone who even the legislators who disagree with his agenda uh, seek out and respect. And Jeff, it's a real pr- pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you, Bill. It's great to be here as well. And it's not even June. That's right. <laughs> right. The last time I think you were here was the Supreme Court uh, issuing its ruling on uh, Roe. That's been almost a year. Uh, Patricia, let's start with the transgender issues. And I want to put it in the larger context of uh, the national push to limit uh, uh, treatments for transgender individuals, uh, prevent them from being involved in sports in many cases. And, and the Pew Trust uh, issued a report last month I'm going to read just a couple of sentences from it. Republican lawmakers in more than half the states are continuing a party line push to restrict doctors and other medical providers from offering some gender affirming health care to minors, even with parents consent. A review by the American Civil Liberties Union finds that state lawmakers have introduced at least 85 bills this session. This is around the country to restrict gender affirming health care which is up from 43 last year and 32 in 2021. Patricia, a lot of this is being done. Um, I'm not going to doubt the the sincerity of some of the uh, legislators who who believe that they need to protect people in terms of transgender treatments, but it's also being done with an eye on 2024, yes? Uh, Sure, and I think that both things can happen at the same time, even for varying reasons. Um, The confluence of the two pieces of it, um, the politics of it, which really, really work for um, GOP activists in particular, and then the the issue that's being driven um, in the Georgia State Senate, it was being uh, driven by a doctor in the State Senate. Um, I think the confluence of the interests of those two groups have really brought this issue to the forefront here in Georgia. I think the politics themselves is what's making it um, such a hot button issue nationally. And I can just give the example of Herschel Walker's Senate campaign when he gave he would give a 45 minute speech to the to GOP activists during his uh, Senate campaign. And um, the single biggest applause line every single time had to do with, in his words, keeping men out of women's sports, the transgender issue um, absolutely animates GOP activists right now, um, but it's getting very much tangled up in the reality of medical care for minors. And so um, it's an issue that I think is feels like it's getting pushed very quickly by politics, um, but feels also like an issue that needs more study and understanding. There's just a, an obvious um, lack of knowledge and understanding in the legislature right now about all of these issues. And to be legislating them quickly feels like um, a bit of a of a train wreck waiting to happen, to be honest with you. 
Uh, Jeff, to, to make sure that we can tee up this issue for all of us to talk about it, what uh, measure in terms of transgender issues is still alive in the legislature? What is the one bill that's left um, targeted to do? Yeah, so the one bill that is left is Senate Bill 140, um, and that's the bill that, that Patricia mentioned uh, that did come out of the Senate. It restricts two specific forms of gender-affirming care. It restricts surgeries, and it restricts hormone replacement therapy. And actually, I, I say restrict, but uh, let me be a little bit more clear about this, because I think Patricia brings up some really good points about the lack of knowledge. It bans these. Uh, Senator Ben Watson, in his uh, floor speech in support of this bill on the Senate floor, said it would make it illegal, that it would prevent doctors from uh, engaging in these medical practices. Uh, and so while surgeries themselves are actually extremely rare for minors, hormone replacement therapy is something that medical providers will prescribe to older adolescents who have usually been on puberty blockers for a long period of time and feel that hormone replacement therapy is going to be in the best interest of that child so that their body will more align with their identity, who they are deeply rooted as a person. Um, and the entire issue of gender affirming care, while it's new to most people, it's not actually new to the medical field. There are strict standards of care that are reviewed and updated regularly by the World Professional Association on Transgender Health and are supported by all major medical associations, including the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Federation of Pediatric Organizations, the American Psychological Association. So I, you know, in the Senate, we had about six people that were able to testify on uh, two different bills, one that would ban all forms of gender affirming care, one that would ban uh, surgeries and hormone replacement therapy. As this heads to the House now, uh, we have an open letter that we will be releasing in the next couple of days that over 500 medical providers around the state of Georgia have signed expressing their concern. We've got an open letter that will be coming in a few days that over 300 parents have signed. And at the end of the day, I would hope that all parents would ask themselves, who do you want making medical decisions for your child? You, in consultation with a medical professional who is following standards of care that are well-established, researched, and evidence-based, or the Georgia legislature? Uh, I think Patricia said it quite well when she said this is a train wreck waiting to happen. We know what happens when we ban medical care, when we restrict science. And Bill, you brought up the Pew Trust, but uh, you know that article is now already well outdated. As of last Friday, there are now close to 400 anti-LGBT bills that have been filed throughout the country, and almost half of them target health care for transgender folks, the vast majority of them are minors. And and the, I, I realize that the the article is only a month old, so things have, have, have really gathered steam for in the last month alone. Andra, I, I think one of the things that especially Patricia said, which is two things can be true at one time. 
there can be legislators who have legitimate and sincere beliefs that transgendered youth uh, should there should be a a holding period before everything everything can, uh, would be allowed to allow them to make the transition. I get that there are sincere beliefs about that. I also get that politics are playing a big role. But it strikes me that one of the most important aspects of this is that the legislature is wading wading in to an issue far beyond the comprehension of many of them and many of us to understand. Well, they're waiting. They're not waiting into the science part of it to understand kind of what the medical processes are, right? Because that's the thing where most legislators don't have specialized expertise, but they do have a sense of how they would define sex and gender, uh, and they have certain values that they are, uh, you know, that they are defending when they are making these kinds of statements. Uh, you know, I think that there is a really important thing to make sure that uh, you know decisions that are being made are data-driven. I also think that from a political standpoint, this is good red meat uh, for a base of, of, of voters who have demonstrated their ability to be mobilized on cultural issues, who have um, been able to demonstrate their ability to be mobilized on issues that relates to people being alarmed at societal changes and changes um, in mores and, and sort of discussions about sexuality and gender identity fall um, under that. But then there's also the question of consistency. So we're still not over some of the discussions yet about, you know, other things that should be taught in schools, like race, where uh, these same folks have also asserted a right for parents to be involved, uh, you know, in their children's education and to <clears throat> veto things that their children are being taught. And so it's actually somewhat ironic that on this particular issue, they're actually seeking to take power away from parents who are making these types of decisions for their children just because they disagree with them on moral grounds. And that's something I think we're going to have to contend with. Like, how can on one hand you say that parents have a right to argue with their kids, uh, argue with their children's teachers about whether or not you teach about racism or the causes of the Civil War or whatever. Uh, and then on the other hand, you're not allowing parents to make decisions for their children um, regarding their gender expression. And so, you know, it's this is, you know, this this, this is where we are in the culture of war. Bernard. So, I mean, honestly, I think my colleague, Professor Gillespie, is spot on. I mean, it's so kind of interesting in Patricia's comments about 2024 being, you know, front of mind for many of these politicians, I think, are also spot on. But we're talking here about the government, you know, being even further involved in what are complex medical decisions between doctors, parents, and minor children. And, you know, post you know, post the Dobbs decision, I don't think it's surprising that we're going to see, you know, these kinds of measures proliferating because it seems like an easy issue when we just talk about, you know, conceptions of sex or gender. But in reality, in terms of the medical, you know, situation that's going on, this is actually quite complex. And, you know, a lot of evidence suggests that any kinds of bans or changes that we're talking about um, in the care that children, again, medically approved care that children are receiving, you know, might have really, really damaging physical consequences. We can't just distill this down to some kind of decision about, you know, uh, people's beliefs about, uh, you know, transgender rights. This is really about health. And those decisions should be made between doctors, parents and, you know, children where appropriate. Patricia. So 
Uh, one of the most interesting pieces of the Senate debate um, on this bill was from Senator Sally Harrell, who is a Democrat from the metro Atlanta area who has a transgender child. And she has spoken about her child before, but she got up again to speak out against this bill. And she said that she felt like um, she said how incredibly difficult the entire process has been for her child for her family uh for her personally um she said she really would like to see funding go toward training for doctors for pediatricians to know what to do even what options are there um even understand the phenomenon of what they're looking at and what what's coming to them she said there's an entire sort of subset and almost surset of um, of mental health issues that some children are dealing with at the same time. And um, she said that even as a parent, she might have um, been relieved that a bill like this was passed when when, she, when her child first came to her with this news. She said it, it would have just helped us avoid the entire issue. You know, she said, but that is not the right thing to do for the legislature. It's not the role for the legislature. And um, she just asked people to have compassion toward these families and their children who are really dealing with something that is quite difficult. Um, instead of rushing in to ban things, not just for doctors, but also for entire hospital systems. Um, and so uh, she really asked them to take a step away from their politics and really think very personally and compassionately about these uh, families and their children. Jeff? Yeah, Bill. So, so two points. One, uh, you know, as, as Bernard had said, uh, you know, there there are some serious complications uh, or, or ramifications uh, of of this legislation on the mental health and well being of kids. Uh, the Trevor Project, which is arguably one of the the top national anti suicide prevention programs in the country, they released a, a poll. Uh, or a survey that they had done um, nationally that showed that 71% of kids, uh, LGBTQ Q youth, had uh, reported experiencing severe stress uh, and, and negative mental health outcomes just by the very debate of these bills around the country. Imagine you're a child that is uh, struggling to fit into a world, which a lot of kids do anyway. But there's not so much a roadmap um, if you uh, identify as transgender. There's not a lot of resources out there. And so imagine that you're this kid and you are hearing that there are these hundreds of bills attacking you, that your very existence is being debated in legislatures, and that in a number of states that are rushing to ban this, you can't even exist. That, of course, has severe implications. And so back to what Andre had said earlier about, uh, you know, consistency. One of the things that our legislature should be most proud of is the bipartisan efforts that started last year and continue into this year and hopefully will continue into future years to reform Georgia's mental health system. You cannot be saying that you support reforms and protections and increases to mental health access here in Georgia while at the same time debating and perhaps passing legislation that will undercut <clears throat> mental health for some of the most vulnerable kids there are. Jeff, I, I want to uh, ask you, uh, Andra talked about the, the sort of inconsistency uh, between uh, legislators who want their parents to have a larger role in determining curriculum for their children, but on the other hand, 
don't want them to have the right to deal with transgendered their transgender children the way they believe they need to. It gets even closer to home because there's also a bill, I believe I'm right, it's still alive, which would force teachers to out LBGTQ uh, uh, students yeah. um, to the parents. And there are times, right, when a, when a student may feel that it's a safer shelter to talk to a, a teacher about either sexual identity or uh, about their sexual orientation, but but legislation would force the teachers to tell the parents what the child is going through. And you were quoted by Maureen Downey on that just this morning. The role of our teachers is to provide a safe and inclusive learning environment for our kids, free from bullying and discrimination. Instead, teachers and parents, you say teachers and parents should be allies with each other but teachers should not be forced to violate the trust of their students. Total inconsistency there. Well, I, so first of all, that Senate Bill uh, 88 is what you're referring to. That did not actually make it out of committee uh, through crossover day. Uh, it was amended to, uh, to say that all s- schools, public and private, um, uh, as well as a number of, of camps uh, and other after-school programs were going to have to create policies on how they would address gender identity. Okay. And so uh, what, this, what this is, uh, what, what, what the, the concern with that bill was, is that uh, if a kid came to a teacher and asked questions, about gender identity in its original form. And that's actually, I believe, when uh, Maureen and I had the the conversation was before we saw an an amended substitute version of of that bill. Uh, In in, in its original form, the teacher couldn't even refer the student to a counselor to have these conversations. Um, And yes, in an ideal situation, uh, parents will be involved. But unfortunately, in the real world, we know that there are hostile situations where if a child is exposed to a hostile parent, uh, that 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 can result in in damage to the kid. Uh, you know, forty percent of homeless youth report identifying as LGBTQ. These are kids that have been kicked out of their homes just for expressing who they are, and their parents won't reject them. So again, nuance is needed in these instances. Um, and what is in the best interest of the child is when there is great flexibility in institutions, systems, so that it can tailor the care that is needed, be it mental health or, uh, or physical health, to the needs of that child. Bernard, before we close off this subject and move on, um, it, it strikes me and has for a while now that, you know, we went through this new frontier when gay marriage uh, what became the law of the land uh, when the Supreme Court ruled that it was constitutional and legal. Um, and that was a breakthrough after years in which uh, the LBGT community was demonized uh, over the issue of same-sex marriage. Um, and and then we, not long after that, the issue of transgender, uh, whether they're young people or older people, uh, suddenly sprang to the surface. And and so it feels like there's a new frontier out there that we're going to that we're going to see fights over for who knows how long to come. Yeah, I mean, again, I think that the when we consider this to be kind of a new frontier, um, a kind of political or government issue, I mean, I think. We're kind of missing the point. This is about health, 
and about care. And to the degree that we're sitting here, you know, or anyone who's advocating for, you know, bans on children receiving, again, care that is determined by a doctor to be medically necessary, you know, we're just in, in a completely different ballpark. And I think that's what I'm most concerned about, especially for the future. Um, you know, we've already seen some indications uh, from individuals, not in Georgia, as far as I know, but in other states who are advocating for a ban on minors receiving gender affirming care, that the real goal is to prevent any adult from receiving gender affirming yeah. care. I think it's a slippery slope. And again, this is about the government getting involved in complex medical decisions between doctors, parents and children. And, and that's really what it is. It's disappointing that some might feel this is red meat for the base heading into 2024. But um, I mean, again, just think about the people, the human beings involved. And, um, you know, that, that's what I'm thinking about when evaluating who's advocating for these kinds of uh, these kinds of policies. Uh Thank you all for that conversation. Um, we got to get to a break and we're going to move on to other issues. I make a personal, quick personal note. Um, Janice and I have actually known uh, four families uh, uh, well uh, who have had children that have wanted to go through transgender uh, treatments. Uh, um, and, and, and we've watched the difficulty, the pain that they all experience in coming to terms with that. And yet, those families have come out the other side, and we see them intact. We see them happy. So it's we've had a really strong personal experience uh, with this, so that when, Bernard, you talk about these are personal matters and these are about how human beings have to deal with, have to grapple with complicated issues, I, I get it. We've seen it firsthand, as I'm sure some of you on the panel today probably have too. Let's get to the first break of the show. We'll come back with more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Jeff Graham, Bernard Fraga, Andre Gillespie, and Patricia Murphy with me today for Political Rewind. Patricia, uh, for the last couple of sessions, ever since SB 202 was passed, we've had people like the governor and other political leaders in the state say, well, we've done everything we need to do about election issues. We don't want to take them up again. And yet, we are back again. There are a couple of bills that have an impact, uh, could have an impact, if they uh, uh, finally go to the governor's desk for signature. And Bernard, of course, is an expert on watching over uh, issues that relate to people voting and elections under two. But before we turn it over to them, um, I believe, first of all, uh, the bill which would ban nonprofit organizations from giving financial aid to county election offices who are strapped for resources is still alive. And I think I'm correct that the uh, legislation that would ban uh, drop boxes is still alive as well. Yes, the bill to to ban drop boxes is still alive. Um, even advocates of drop boxes said once the legislature moved them inside polling places and limited them to just voting hours, it 
really defeated the purpose of Dropboxes entirely, although they obviously still want to see Dropboxes available and even expanded, but that's not the direction the legislature looks like it wants to take. Um, also, the bill to ban private outside funding, that's related directly, um, as you said, to uh, Jeff Zuckerberg and his foundation that gave more than $60 million to county officials um, in 2020. A lot of that money went toward COVID-related efforts, um, screens to protect uh, election workers when they had the plexiglass in front of them, um, additional postage for all of the um, applications that went out, um, the ballot applications, um, lots and lots of money about to go to um, funding, uh, voter education efforts to tell people when and how and where they could um, submit their absentee ballots. It was just such an unusual election. That money was really desperately needed by counties. Um, but what this bill says is that uh, that money, that kind of money from anybody will not be allowed in the future. The suspicion from Republicans was that that money was meant to just go to DeKalb and Fulton and large Democratic counties. It was made available to all counties in the state, um, but used uh, more by large counties because they had more needs, obviously. Um, so that bill is very much alive and that feels like it's got a lot of legs. Um, there are even other measures to change the way that um, uh, mass voter challenges are being conducted. Um, more than 90,000 uh, voter mm. um, eligibility uh requirement, not requirements, but voters eligibilities were challenged last year. And you can do it and one person can challenge 20,000 if they want to. So the legislature may go in and change that as well. So lots and lots of changes still coming forward. And Democrats continue to remind people, as do we, the last election was not fraudulent. There, there was not fraud that needs to be corrected. There are no fraudulent processes that need to be um, unwound because that just didn't exist in 2020. But but the um, kind of the movement forward continues continues on these bills. Bernard and then Andra, I'd love to have you weigh in on this. Sure. So, you know, the legislature this year considered a number of election related bills. One of the kind of prominent omnibus bills, which drew some comparison with SB 202 from 2021 was um, Senate Bill 221. So, I mean, all the numbers here are pretty similar, but you just switch them around. Um, it did some different things, you know, banned non-citizens from working at the polls, required, um, you know, individuals who are homeless, they had to register with the courthouse address, allowed for handmarked ballots uh, in some elections with approval from the elections board. Um, but, you know, the things that were getting a lot of attention, number one was these unlimited challenges, um, which could be brought against voters basically saying that they're not eligible if they moved out of the state, but using information from uh, the USPS national change of address form. I don't know if any of you ever filed those. When you move, you can say forward your mail, but um, some people are doing a temporary move that could also catch them even though they haven't actually moved. And then this intense scrutiny on drop boxes. So in the original committee meeting, uh, there was an indication that, you know, there should be increased surveillance on drop boxes, including putting a camera uh, 24 hours a day live streaming so you could see the faces of everyone putting a ballot into a Dropbox. Again, these Dropboxes are already inside now as a result of SB202, already only open during early voting. You are only allowed to drop off ballots for you or your family members. This would have allowed continuous recording of the faces of everyone voting. Uh, that didn't pass, but it was mostly because county election officials said there's no way we can do that. We're going to do set up a webcam. It seemed very odd. Um, 
And last minute, the ethics committee said, we'll just ban them altogether. Now, that did not clear that bill, that omnibus bill did not make it a crossover day. Parts of it could still exist. It looks like the funding, Patricia mentioned outside funding for election officials, which was already partially banned under SB 202, that um, did make it with crossover day. Parts of that SB 221 could make it into other bills. We've seen that happen <clears> before. There's a lot of uncertainty, but again, the story is in elections we've had in Georgia with no fraud, but very high voter turnout, um, we might again see tweaks to our election system <laughs> and um, not always in a in a direction that's justified by a federal law and by the experiences of voters. Yeah, I mean, just to build um, on, on what Bernard said, I, I view these bills as tweaks and extensions of what's already been passed in SB 202. So some of it is kind of policy feedback. So you look to see how things are implemented and then if you wanna see if you wanna go further. So especially the provisions about donations and applying for grants, right? This is, oh, SB 202 didn't go far enough in the minds of the uh, of the sponsors of the bill who are involved in, in you know these pieces of legislation as well. So they're just going and sort of like clarifying and adding on other things to try to close loopholes that they see happening. But in general, the same spirit and the same ethos that informed SB 202 last year appears to be informing um, this bill this year. So, you know, it's it's one thing to say you want to make it easy to vote and hard to cheat. I think a lot of people can agree with that. But then there's also just the transparency of these bills are emerging in a particular time and place and against a particular narrative that's still pervasive. So there's still people who do not believe that, uh, you know, Donald Trump lost the 2020 election here in Georgia. They are convinced that fraud made it happen, and they are trying to step up efforts to try to prevent that in the future. So, you know, despite all evidence to the contrary, and despite the fact that despite these laws could be passed, right, certain people are not always going to win elections and you can't always blame it on cheating. But this is just a way of trying to, you know, game the system for the benefit of what happened in the last election, as opposed to looking forward to what's going to happen in the future. Jeff, you spend a lot of time at the Capitol, so you hear the arguments played out in the halls and in the uh, and, and at the and uh, in, in, inside the session itself. And and one of the things, of course, that Republicans say repeatedly is, "Wait a minute! If we're suppressing the vote with these uh, laws, why is it that we've had such extraordinary turnout in elections over the past uh, two plus years?" And 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 you know, that's th- that resonates with some people out there, with a lot of people out there, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, it certainly resonates with a lot of people, but I I think, you know, you have to really look at kind of what has happened and the timing of these bills that, uh, you know, it was when Democrats actually started doing quite well here in Georgia, uh, that suddenly we had these issues that that came up around voting reform. And I think, you know, as as Bernard and Andre have already said, you know, when it comes to, to, to ballot drop boxes, this is incredibly popular with the voters here in Georgia. So, you know, if they're actually concerned about making sure that the vote is most accessible and most fair, they need to be looking at the data. They need to be looking at what Georgia voters are saying. We can certainly tweak the system. I don't think anybody is opposed to that. But I think when we have these broad sweeping changes, that's when the charges of voter suppression, I think are very, very real and very, very concerning. Patricia. 
Oh, so sorry. Um, so also when Republicans are saying there, there are no negative effects from these bills, look at all of the people who are able to vote. It's not um, just about voters. It is also about county election workers. And we have heard from county after county after county who are telling us the amount of extra work it puts on them, particularly these voter challenges, to have to go through these allegations, often filed by um, grassroots activists who are going off of incomplete information, but the kind of incomplete information that's allowed under the law, um, it is sending them on these wild goose chases um, when they just simply do not have the time and resources, particularly right in front of an election um, or right in the aftermath of an election to deal with these kinds of things. And so it's all being created by the legislature, but it's falling on the shoulders of county election workers who are already stressed. Um, and in addition to the fact they won't be able to get outside funding from groups, um, they are significantly limited in the resources they have to meet all of these demands that the laws are creating on them. All right, let's do this. Um, let's take our final break of the show. There are a couple of issues I really want to turn to, um, including a little bit more on the Atlanta Police Training Center, and then Mike Pence, who made some pretty remarkable comments at the Gridiron Dinner in Washington Saturday night. We'll do that uh, when we come back uh, from these messages. Um, quick program note uh, before we move on. Uh, if you were like Jeff Graham, I know, was up watching the Academy Awards till late last night, you might be interested in knowing we have a we don't do this very often. We have a podcast special that uh, we posted over the weekend. It's my conversation with co-chief um, film critic of The New York Times, Manola Dargis. Now, we recorded it before the Academy Awards, but the subject of the conversation started as one about her feeling that women for the first time in the movie industry, are finally being heard in ways they haven't been in the past. And it developed from there. So that's available to you if you want to uh, download that particular uh, podcast out there. Uh, Andra, uh, Natalie Mendenhall said there was one more point you wanted to make about the election bills before we move on. Yeah, I mean, you know, people using the well turnout, you know, still remains high and robust. So there isn't any voter suppression going on. There is the disparate effect that we can talk about, but then there's also intent, which is still an issue here. And so if you meant for it to happen just because it didn't work, doesn't mean that you there isn't some culpability there. And there doesn't mean that there shouldn't be accountability for it. So a lot of people sort of hold up that just because civil rights groups in particular have figured out how to get around some of the obstacles that are put into their place. It doesn't mean that one, the obstacles aren't there and that they weren't put there for malicious purposes. And okay. so I think we just have to put right. that out there. Thank you uh, uh, for that observation. Uh, Patricia, uh, at some point today, the family of Manuel Turan, the parents, are, are planning to hold a news conference in which they are going to release uh, the uh, uh, an independent autopsy uh, of, uh, uh, of of Tehran uh, Tortugila as he's Tortugila is that right uh, uh, as they uh, as they are known um, in which the autopsy suggests that they had their uh, hands raised in a surrender position when they were shot and killed. Now we'll wait and see <clears throat> exactly what this autopsy reveals. But it's just going to add fuel 
to the fire, clearly. And I'm beginning to wonder if the opposition to this isn't gaining a lot of steam and credibility, despite the fact that there's been a lot of uh, anger over the fact that we know people have come in who are basically anarchists, who are anti-cop in many ways. But it feels as this thing is, is really gaining momentum. Have I got that wrong? Well, so I think there's there is a there are now multiple different fronts of uh, pushback against this. I think we have um, the obviously the environmental activists who had their concerns about the specific site where this is happening. There are the out of state activists who are generically opposed to police funding. Um, now the uh, very significant concerns of the family of um, this activist who was killed by uh, Georgia State Trooper. Um, those are going to be aired. Uh, it does feel like it is also getting more national attention. The New York Times has written about um, this piece as well. Um, I think um, the mayor's, I feel like the mayor's office has more work to do to make the case for this, um, this facility. Why now? Why here? And what is the goal of doing this? I've heard the mayor say this many times, but it feels like they still need to push more on this. Um, this some, some of the concerns that are raised by activists, um, sort of concern about police brutality, police treatment of its um, of their uh, suspects have to do with a lack of training. This facility is designed to expand training facilities and opportunities for police. Um, I think there is there should be more middle ground than we're seeing right now, um, but it definitely feels like activists are um, more organized, uh, louder, and really having more significant output um, in more different directions than the mayor's office when he is trying to push back on all of these um, on all of these concerns and allegations that are out there. Bernard? So, I mean, I agree. I think that now there's some momentum um, to, to stop this project or at least substantially limit the impact it's going to have on the area, on the on the forest. Um, you know, it's so interesting to think, what was it, one, two weeks ago when the mayor's office and kind of this like um, is a little bit closed doors. But, you know, it was a public statement talking about limiting the scope in some way, which seemed to be a kind of compromise. Um, you know, I'm just fascinated by the kind of inability of, you know, the mayor's office, but also other officials involved with the project to provide, you know, a clear sense of exactly what happened um, in terms of protesters who were at the site with um, Tehran's, you know, you know, death, um, exactly who was involved and what happened. Was it friendly fire that, you know, led to a police officer potentially being, you know, shot and, and Tehran had nothing to do with it and then was just a victim of a shooting? I mean, it's, there's so much that's not clear here, and it feels like every time there's an attempt to kind of, you know, resolve the situation on the part of the mayor's office, something else kind of happens. Um, overreach by, you know, um, police officers who were at the site. Again, remember, the public is not in favor of this project in the city of Atlanta and DeKalb County, at very least. So, I mean, they're already kind of facing an uphill battle there. Um, it just seemed like this is something that was going to go away, but um, is sticking around. And, and frankly, I think activists know that. And that's why they're going to continue pushing. Jeff, I, I introducing in introducing you said that you were really always respected down at the Capitol. And one of the reasons that is true is you've always been really good at communicating your point of view about issues, particularly that affect the LGBTQ community. I would take, uh, I think Patricia makes a good point. It strikes me that 
the communication in favor of this training center has never been unified and clear. And the Atlanta Police Foundation, which is paying some 60-plus million dollars and has been pushing this for a very long time, has remained completely in the background. Um, And they're having a big influence, I would suggest, on the city officials like the mayor of Atlanta in terms of their resolve uh, to move forward in a way the police foundation hopes this facility will be built. Well, I I, I think you uh, really make a a, a strong point, Bill. Uh, There there has been a tremendous lack of transparency from the very beginning of this this process. Uh, There was a lack of transparency as to to why this particular site was chosen. Um, And and, and frankly, you know, it's it's my understanding that uh, that saving the forest was actually part of a long-term plan for the city of Atlanta to begin with. And so why was this change made at the last minute, uh, so close to an election, uh, by uh, a a lot of folks that, frankly, are no longer in office? Uh, All of this is incredibly problematic. And and, and unfortunately, uh, I think we need to, to really mourn that the fact a young activist lost their life, that are the stakes of this lack of transparency, that are the stakes of not listening to the community and having strong community involvement and engagement. Delaying a project of this importance uh, a year ago would have made the difference and probably saved a life. This is a catastrophe uh, and and tragic all the way around. Andra? You know, I agree with Jeff, and I'm, I've learned so much from um, all of, of the panelists today. There, I mean, you're going to do something this big. It's important, one, to get buy-in from the community and then to explain what's going on, right? Because what some people see in Cop City is another form of police militarization. Um, and so what they have in their he- head is memories of tanks going down the streets of Ferguson, um, and so if that's not what this is, then it's incumbent on the city to explain why this isn't the case and why this might actually look like the types of training facilities that I think of, like my colleague Rayshawn Ray being involved in at the University of Maryland to train cops to de-escalate and then one, not to racially profile people. And then I think the question becomes, do you need a facility that large that's going to have <laughs> the environmental impact of destroying forest area, right? But we can't have that discussion if all the parties aren't they're seated at the table to have that type of discussion. Yeah, I I think it's going to be fascinating as the opposition builds, and we'll see what this news conference uh, tells us today, about how willing the mayor and his people are to sort of reframe this conversation and maybe do more with the community. When you have people gathering at the King Center, as they did late last week, to protest this, um, you're really now talking about a momentum that I think it's going to be interesting to see how the mayor responds to. All right, Patricia, with the last few minutes we have, I really want to get the panel's take. You first on Mike Pence, Saturday night, the gridiron dinner. He makes some lame jokes. Um, actually, one of them or two of them were actually pretty good. He said at one point the reason he might have been late getting there is he had some uh, papers to drop off at the National Archive, which isn't a bad joke. But here's what he also said, quote, history will hold Donald Trump accountable for January 6th. Make no mistake about it. What happened that day was a disgrace. It mocks decency to portray it in any other way. President Trump was wrong. His reckless words endangered my family and everyone at the Capitol. 
uh, that uh, day. And he actually went on to praise journalists. Uh, he was in an audience. Uh, he, he was talking to an audience of journalists. But here's the question, Patricia. It's like Mike Pence was never going to get uh, a Trump uh, uh, voters to turn to him, obviously. Trump has already buried him with that uh, base. So really, did he have much alternative but to decide to get to, to make a strong statement like this and hope there's a lane for the anti-Trump candidate out there? Well, it just feels incredibly cynical for Mike Pence to be um, having this moment of clarity in front of a room full of journalists instead of a room full of Republican voters, <laughs> for one thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's also had daily opportunities He's had opportunities once an hour for the last two years to say this and to say it loudly and to say it to the January 6th committee and to say it to the um, special prosecutor who has subpoenaed him. And he's fighting his subpoena to talk about the specific details of what happened on January 6th. So um, I have seen Mike Pence speak at uh, these kind of like comedy dinners before. He is incredibly funny and extremely witty. Um, But I don't know why he chose this moment to have um, sort of his truth serum delivered. Um, And it's just to an audience that loves to hear it. Obviously, he's pleasing those people in the room, but he really needs to have the guts to say it to the voters he's trying to appeal to. And I'll be fascinated to see if he says something like this in Iowa to an Iowa GP dinner. That would be a lot more interesting. I want to give uh, you a chance, and you, Bernard, especially. Uh, Andra, go ahead as we run short of time. So I see this as confession, but not repentance. Um, And so I think what people are looking for is repentance from lots of Republicans. Mike Pence, not, you know, chief among them. And I don't think people are there yet. I don't think it's going to help him win the Republican nomination. And so the first thing is, yeah, one, cooperate with the feds. And then two, I need a Jim Baker style book like the televangelist. I was wrong. And like, like nobody's done that yet. And so, you know, I'm not satisfied yet. Andrew Gillespie putting it in terms of her evangelical upbringing. (laughs) Bernard? Well, you know, my upbringing is in Indiana. I grew up in Indiana. Uh, Mike Pence was governor there before he became vice president, of course. And, you know, this is classic Mike Pence. He's very good at saying the right thing to the right audience, not saying the wrong thing to the right audience, unlike, you know, the former president, Donald Trump. And I actually think that this is his attempt to kind of toe the line with Trump supporters. Remember, He was in, he was the vice president for Donald Trump. So he can sit there and say, I did my job. I respect the man. He was wrong on this issue. Support me instead. I'll give you a Trump style presidency without the Trump baggage. So I I actually think this is part of the, you know, his attempt to rehabilitate his image, but not just with Democrats and people who are never going to vote for him anyway, also with Republicans who say they don't like Trump, but they want someone that doesn't say what he did was, you know, illegal to the point of going and testifying against him. All right. Um, thank you, uh, all of you today, for a really robust conversation. As I said, there were too many issues that I asked you to talk about. We didn't get to um, any number of them, but I'm grateful that we did uh, uh, talk about what I think are key issues of the day in political news. So, Jeff Graham, thank you uh, for being here. You as well, Bernard Fraga, Andre Gillespie, Patricia Murphy. Are we going to see a big story drop from you in the next few minutes? You said you're working on something. Should we be looking at AJC.com? Bill, I'm still working on it. That's that's what I can okay. tell you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's it. We are completely out of time uh, for today's show. Um, I'm Bill Nygut. 
Uh, be back with you tomorrow. Take care. Stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.